It's 1830, and Edward Gibbon Wakefield is fresh out of a London prison. Will anyone listen to the colonization dreams of an ex-convict? Welcome to Footnoting Histories Part 2 of the life of Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Hey everyone, welcome to Footnoting History. This is Christine. And I'm Liz. And today we're bringing you the second half of our journey through the tumultuous life of Edward Gibbon Wakefield. That's I know, he is that scandalous prisoner from the 19th century. He so is. He so is. Anyway, this week we're springing Edward from his prison and focusing on the period of his life where he turned his eye to Australia and New Zealand. Don't worry if you missed part one, you can still find it on footnotinghistory.com iTunes, or our RSS feed, because we are all over the place. Mm -hmm. You may want to check out the site anyway, because, you know, we've put up some extra images and newspaper clippings pertaining to Edward that might interest you as a supplement to what we're doing. Well, to bring you up to speed on the first half of his life, in case you missed it, he was born on March 20th, 1796, and he had an angsty childhood, if you want to go by what we would call it now. He -hmm. had a clandestine but happy marriage that produced two children. And after only four years together, he became a widower. His dream of winning a seat in Parliament needed a lot of money to do so, so he and his brother William carried out a, not surprisingly, ill-fated plan to abduct a young heiress named Ellen Turner and dupe her into marrying Edward, because that's what you do when you want to be in Parliament. Obviously. Uh, Yes. The resulting scandal got Edward and William matching three-year prison sentences, but in different jails. But when we last saw Edward... He had just entered Newgate Prison in London in 1827 and saw his clandestine marriage to Miss Turner annulled, thus ending his association with the Turner family and granting him three years of nothing to do but think about the rest of his life. So exit stage left Turner family. Mm Bye-bye. All right. I think at this point we can say that Edward was, if nothing else, an active man, right? I mean, he got around. He 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 got around. He avoided becoming stagnant in many ways. First, by taking control of the lives of his children, and then by developing a love for helping his fellow man and a determination to improve the government's methods of colonization. Since for him, his family came first, we'll begin with them. All right, his two children, Nina and Edward Jerningham. And we're going to call Edward, little Edward, we're going to call him Jerningham from now on to distinguish him from his father. Nina and Jerningham are living in Paris with Edward prior to the abduction. While their father was off stealing his new bride, they, arri- they remained in Paris with a family friend, one who actually knew the abduction was taking place, and even helped prepare a new place for the new Mrs. Wakefield to stay, though she never made it there. No. Once their father returned to England to face the charges brought against him, they suffered a period of separation that ended when Edward entered Newgate. Since he wasn't going anywhere for a while, you may say, he had the children brought to England where they took up residence with their governess near Newgate Prison and they visited their father every day. That must have been a lovely thing. I know. Anyway, Ashby and Jones, who wrote a lot about the abduction, had access to the family's private letters, which I would love to see. Mm. They reported that Edward definitely had a favorite child at this point. That child was his daughter, Nina. She was his pride and joy, and he often wrote to his sister about her delicate health. He also detailed the care he took, paying attention to the most minute details of her life, from what she ate, to what she wore, to everything that she was taught. The relationship between father and son was somewhat more complicated, despite them only being little children. 
as Edward revealed that he is sure he loved his son, but it seems to the outsider that he had difficulty bonding with the child whose birth resulted in the death of his first wife. Yeah, but nevertheless, he took care of his now coming up to be teenage children, writing to his grandmother in 1828 that, quote, my confinement is in some respects very advantageous to them, as I have nothing to do but attend to their education, which is proceeding to my heart's content, end quote. And isn't that what almost every teenager wants? Their dad just being able to focus completely on them the whole Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Edward's prison sentence benefited those of us learning about him two centuries later also, because when he wasn't with his children, he was researching and writing. Unlike the first half of his life, where a lot of what we know about it comes from either secondary biographies written by people like Ashbeer Jones or the plethora of publications about his trial, which we love, we do love those, but now we get to read his own words or how he wanted them presented. While in Newgate, he became something of a curious observer of prison life. After all, compared to his fellow inmates, he had a pretty posh sentence, sitting around biding his time while others faced harsher punishments, including transportation to Australia to act as laborers in the prison colonies or execution. It's almost as if he got to be a reporter covering the prison system from the inside out, and it's easy to imagine his overactive brain spending time reading, observing, and writing. The treatment of his fellow prisoners was a topic of his first publication, which, yes, he managed to get published while still behind the prison walls. Nicely done. Exactly. The condemned sermons sought to shine light on the negative treatment of inmates, and a follow-up piece, not published until after he left prison, called Punishment of Death in the Metropolis, expressed a firm belief that the current system of corporal sentencing was useless, and called for a greater focus on the prevention of crime as opposed to its punishment. These writings include conversations with the other convicts, and some of them admitted to committing their crimes with the hope of receiving a sentence of transportation. It was transportation that caught Edward's eye even more than execution. He had never been to Australia, because he was busy stealing wives, but he read up a lot on the migration patterns to New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land. You can imagine him sitting alone in his cell and mulling over the situation, and this is where we see him find what would become his lifelong passion revolutionizing the colonization methods of the British Empire. He began this process by publishing a letter from Sydney, which combined theory and creativity. In it, Edward posed as a fictional settler in New South Wales, writing to a friend in England, and lamenting that the lack of sufficient labor to work on his massive land made it impossible for him to survive. As we mentioned, Edward had never been to Australia, but speaking from the presumed perspective of a settler was, if nothing else, an effective way to get noticed. Within it, he outlined the basic ideas he believed should be used to change colonization to greater benefit the mother country and create colonies that were profitable. The combination of the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the increased industrialization of the textile industries in the North, and general lack of success being endured by the British economy caused a maelstrom of overpopulation and underemployment. The result was a pressing need to basically outsource, as we would say today, to outsource a segment of the population into other areas of the empire. However, the formulation of the United States in the late 18th century, us, gave many Britons an alternative choice to the colonies. So in addition to easing the pain at home, Britain needed to ensure that people chose to remain within their colonies instead of choosing to defect to the new country. Already established in North America with settlements in Canada, Australia appeared to be the new frontier, but it was a frontier fraught with difficulty and dominated by the penal colonies where labor came in the form of transported convicts. 
government in Australia was difficult as well. With the armed rebellion of the New South Wales Corps that overthrew the colony's governor and implemented martial law in 1808, as well as the current struggles of settlers in Western Australia fresh in everyone's minds. All right, this is where I'm going into lecture mode for a second. Work with me, guys. Picture me in front of a podium. What exactly was our pent-up anti-hero's plan to change up colonization as Britain knew it? It's no secret that R. Edward liked to write and that he used an entire book to explain his theory for reform settlement in South Australia. So this is how I'm going to summarize the basic tenets. So here, you don't have to read the book. You don't have to read the book. I'm doing it for you. All right. One, the present method of giving land away doesn't work. Two, convict and slave labor, bad. Three, emigration, expensive. Four, and this is one of the sticking points, think American Revolution, Government from afar doesn't work. So those are Edward's ideas. Present method not working, convict slave labor bag, emigration expensive, government from afar doesn't work. So what does Edward think should be happening? Edward believed that granting land for free allowed too many people to scoop it up without ample laborers to work the land. But he also wanted to avoid increasing the amount of people transported as criminal punishment. In England, the situation was the reverse. There were too many people and not enough jobs. How are we going to balance this out? Well, he formulates a plan that comes to be known as systemized colonization. When we break it down, again, I'm in front of a podium, it actually becomes remarkably simple. Instead of making people pay to go to Australia and giving them the land for free, reverse the process. By making people pay to own land in Australia, you automatically create a labor force. Less people will be able to afford purchasing land outright, so the landowners will have their selection of employees based on the emigrants who want to go to Australia but can't yet pay for their own plot. In an ideal situation, those workers would save up the money they earn and then eventually break out on their own, creating even more laboring jobs for the continued steam of new immigrants from England and other places in the empire. He also believed that the government, now that it was no longer giving away land for free, should do what they could to make the cost of moving less. He proposed using the money for the land sales to offset the cost of emigration, which would encourage the people with less money to begin with to emigrate with the richer members of society. Therefore, what you'd quickly see in the new colony was a recreation of England's already well-established social hierarchy, but without the need to use convicts as the primary source of labor. Further to that, he stressed that the transportation of convicts to the colonies damaged the reputation of emigrants and lessened people's desires to travel abroad to live among the discarded members of society. He felt that the superiority complex of those living in Britain put a shame upon colonists that was unfounded, and he hoped that by limiting transportation, perhaps the reputation of the colonies would be changed. With regards to the colonies, he also acknowledged that England learned the hard way in the past that when colonies are so far from the mother country, governing them from London simply isn't as effective as it should be. Because, you know, think of how long you would have to wait to get something back and forth. So he, he insisted that a self-governing system be adopted as quickly as possible, preferably under someone like a viceroy. Edward's economic theory became known as sufficient price because in order to perpetuate the perfect cycle of emigration, labor, and land purchase, there would need to be a perfect amount affixed to the buying of land that leveled out the positions of emigrants in the social strata of the new colony. Although there was a great debate about what exactly that price would be, because things would have to change, Edward firmly believed that it could be calculated and that it could shift over time as needed from watching patterns of the early settlers. 
It was the ideas behind it, though, especially the lowering of the cost of emigration, that caught people's attention. All he had to do was get people to listen to him, and he could single-handedly change the world. All right, so what happens? Edward left prison on May 14, 1830, began the long road to seeing his dreams realized that would take up the remainder of his life. It begins promisingly when he joins together with like-minded gentlemen such as Robert Gruger, Charles Buller, Robert Rintoul, and John Stuart Mill to form the National Colonization Society. The group's biggest success came in January of the following year with the passing of the Ripon Regulations. What happened was that the Prime Minister Howick had read Edward's letters from Sydney and convinced the Secretary of War and Colonies, that's a fun title. It is a fun title. When I grow up, I'm going to be the Secretary of War and Colonies. Prime Minister Howick has read Edward's letters from Sydney and convinced the Secretary of War and Colonies to do away with free land grants and affix a price to the land that was up for offer. There we are. The sweet-talking, gentlemanly abductor becomes a sweet-writing colonization expert. And, like, seriously, a few months ago he was sitting in prison. As you can imagine, this reception only increased Edward's fervor. Despite giving evidence to a government committee that spoke against transportation... Yeah, and I hope our Australian listeners are tired of hearing about how they started as a penal colony. Appreciate Edward's determination to abandon this practice. I'm tired of hearing about them being a transportation colony. I'm not even Australian. Good there for them. Go. I'm yes. glad. Let's, let's, let's seize the bull by the horns and forget transportation. All of his plans for the official formation of a colony were shot down by the government for one reason or another. It wasn't until 1834 that he began to see progress again. And actually, it was more than just progress. It was a breakthrough. Thanks to the efforts of Edward's latest venture, a joint stock company called the South Australia Association, the South Australia Bill became a law on August 15, 1834. This law planned to set up a colony following Edward's dream of avoiding convicts for labor, selling land instead of giving it away, and appointing a population of 50,000 as the time when self-government would be allowed. The dream becomes a realization. But does Edward get to experience? Just as he sets plans into motion to finally go to the place he worked tirelessly to create, life very sadly got in the way, and he abandoned his trip to Australia shortly before he was due to set sail. This sudden change of mind is less peculiar when we examine what happened after the passing of the bill. The ruined reputation Edward had gained when he was sent to prison for abducting Miss Turner took him out of the running for a seat in Parliament. I mean, yeah, okay, not completely shocking. Although today it might, you know... I know, yeah. Today it'd be like, oh, convicted felon? Hmm, okay. Um, So it took him out of the running for a seat in Parliament, and as much as he saw himself as an active part, indeed the active part, of the change in colonization policies, he had no government position that allowed him to act in the implementation of his ideas. As such, the man behind the theory was pushed to the side while others stepped forward to put the law into action. For a man of Edward's ilk, this most likely rubbed him the wrong way, and to be honest, yeah, I mean, I'd be pretty upset if I completely revolutionized something, and then I was told, oh, can't come, sorry. Yeah, seriously. So it left him embittered towards the very colony he wanted to create, but that's not what stopped his travel plans. Things for his family were shaping up splendidly, or so he thought. William, who had fought in both Spain and Portugal upon his release from prison, was made a Knight of the Order of the Tower and Sword, also a title I would like to have, and was not averse to a possible relocation. Daniel, another brother, practiced law and hoped to become a judge in Australia. A third brother, Felix, took this one step... How many brothers? Dear Lord. There's a lot of brothers and there's like two sisters, and one of them actually moves to India to educate girls there. 
So wow. that's one. That's where one of the sisters is, and why she's not really in this story. Um, the third brother, Felix, took this one step further and had already moved to Tasmania with his wife. Even Nina, the favorite daughter, will remember, was enthusiastic about the possible transplantation of her family, writing to her aunt Catherine, Edward's only older sibling, about her hopes that they would all go there together. But that was not to be. In October of 1834, it was evident that Nina developed a serious lung problem. And all of Edward's attention, uh, you know, understandably, went to her. Mm -hmm. He took her traveling to better climates and acted as a devoted companion until she passed away in February of 1835 at only 17 years of age. Edward would later write of this time, quote, The vulgar notion of death has no terrors for me, but I feel more than half dead myself, having lost her for whom alone of late years I have lived. But the one good thing that did come out of this, if you can say that there's a good thing coming out of the death of your child, is that right. from this point on, Edward kept his son closer than before, and they developed a bond that they obviously were hitherto lacking. All right, so I suppose that's a little bit better, but still, the loss of Nina put a definite stop to Edward's enthusiasm for moving to Australia. He needed some time to regroup and mourn the loss of his beloved daughter. During this time, however... Ideas germinated, and he became increasingly interested in the fate of another place, New Zealand. Edward's rebound from Australia was very strong. He might have been somewhat encouraged to know that his work was being carried out in South Australia, even if he was not there. Still, applying his systematic approach to New Zealand did not happen with the ease one might imagine after he had made headway with the passage of the South Australia Bill into law. New Zealand was not a new idea. British colonists from Australia had already begun to hop over to the islands and make private deals with the Aborigines to get land, beginning with what Edward believed was a haphazard and slovenly method of colonization compared to his systemized settlement plans. But when Edward came around to it, there was a group led by Thomas Fowell Buxton and the missionaries who already lived there. That didn't stop Edward from becoming a prime testifier when Britain held a committee to discuss the disposal of land in its colonies in 1836. He sang the praises of New Zealand, calling it the fittest colony in the world for colonization, and describing it as the most beautiful country with the finest climate and the most productive soil, despite he hadn't been there yet, but that didn't matter, and he promoted his system of settlement as an improvement over the current uncontrolled method. As always, his ability to hold an audience captive led to success, and by May of 1837, he saw the creation of the New Zealand Association. Buxton's Select Committee on Aborigines was not a group of fans, and they immediately voiced their displeasure in any plans to colonize New Zealand. There was also resistance from the missionaries of the Church of England already established there. They had been working on the islands for over 20 years and felt that the arrival of white settlers would cause conflicts over land with the Aboriginal Maori, as well as undo all the work they had done to make themselves useful to the native population without being totally offensive. As such, the defeat of the bill from the New Zealand Association in Parliament did not come as a surprise to Edward, and he temporarily decided to look west instead of east to Canada. Seriously, he loved everywhere there could be a colony. So it was the 1830s and early 1840s that gave Edward the first taste of a lifestyle he so respected. He got to be a colonist. He took several trips to Canada while the New Zealand debates were taking place between 1838 and 1843, to act as an advisor, and he must have loved that, to oh, act as totally. an advisor to Lord Durham, the Lord High Commissioner and Governor General. Then he compiled a report on the affairs of North America, 
which promoted the formation of an elected assembly in Canada that mirrored the job of Parliament. He also spoke up for the inclusion of French Canadians in British Canada's constitution and served in the Canadian Assembly while enjoying a close relationship with Sir Charles Metcalfe, who was Governor General by the early 1840s. Basically, he was doing everything he wanted to do in Britain, in Canada. Yet, by 1843, word reached him that drew him back to England. His brother Arthur was killed in New Zealand. Arthur Wakefield had settled in Nelson on the South Island and was very anxious to acquire land for the colony, which brought him up against the native Maori population. Under the leadership of their chiefs, an armed resistance was staged that took the lives of Arthur and about 20 other settlers. Lest you think that while Edward was exploring Canada, the plans for a New Zealand settlement under his colonization were put on hold, rest assured it was not. Despite Edward's occasional physical absence, as he was going back and forth to Canada, he formed another land company that decided that they were going to say to hell with the government if they didn't receive permission to start a settlement and do it anyway. In May of 1839, Edward's brother William, and also as we know his longtime right-hand man, set off with Jerningham, the son, for New Zealand to claim a bunch of land and force the British government to approve their actions. So the thought was, claim land, get approval later. Mm -hmm. The struggle that ensued between the Wakefieldians and the government was fraught with ups and downs, the most notable being Arthur's death in 1843. But even that didn't put a stop to Edward's plans. As early as the next year, he was once again before a committee to pressure them into compliance. The pressure, though, it would seem, also played on Edward's body. Because, another downer, in August of 1846, he suffered from a debilitating stroke that required he resign from the company and take a long sojourn to rest. If you could call writing a view of the art of colonization, his most quotable book, in my opinion, Resting. Because that's what you do, right? I mean, you're sent away to rest, and so obviously you write a book about the art of colonization. That's exactly what you do. Definite. All right. Mm -hmm. So in it, he developed his colonization beliefs one step further and showed that he paid attention to the fact that his greatest opposition came from missionaries. His next colony, set to be in Canterbury, the province that now contains Christ Church, was going to be a Church of England settlement. This would create a wonderful place that would assist the missionaries by providing an example for the Aborigines of what Church of England quote-unquote civilized people look like. How could missionaries argue against a colonial settlement that would spread the very word they were trying to bring to New Zealand? He joined with John Robert Godley and Lord Littleton to form the aptly named, as always, Canterbury Association, which was legitimized by a charter in 1849, and Edward set about orchestrating the sending of other settlers to Canterbury. He even received help from his brother Felix, who organized a publicity drive and held banquets to recruit emigrants. As you do. Soon, yes, soon all was in place, and all that was left was for Edward to set sail for his promised land. The time had finally come, and there was much rejoicing. Except the year is 1853. I know. Oh, Edward. (laughs) The year is 1853. Edward is approaching 60 years old. Man, can you even fathom how excited he must have been? Most of his family is there. His brother Daniel is there. His brother Daniel is Attorney General of the North Island. His son, Edward Jerningham, had traveled over previously. Further to that, William's daughter, Emily, was even there. So when Edward disembarked at Littleton, New Zealand accompanied by his beloved purebred bulldogs, he was truly going home. But even this was bittersweet. We already mentioned the death of his brother, Arthur, 
but he was not the only Wakefield to die in New Zealand. William, the brother who was closest to Edward as a child and acted as his accomplice in the adoption scheme, went to prison for the man. And then to New Zealand as well. Yes, passed away in New Zealand of apoplexy on September 19th, 1848, some nine years after leaving to establish the Wellington settlement for his brother and almost five years before Edward's arrival. Throughout this two-part story, does anybody want to hug William like I do? Because, I no, mean, the I guy... No, I know, I know. He gets married, he goes to prison, he get, he, you know, goes to New Zealand to claim yes. land that he's not supposed to claim yet, and he eventually dies before his brother even gets there. William Wakefield, I hug you. Well, when he goes to prison, his wife dies. I mean, I his know. daughter Emily that's in New Zealand, her mother died while her father was in prison. I mean, and it's they, like... And they've been married for, like, just long enough for them to have her. Yeah, that's all. She was pregnant when he entered. Like, she was born six months later. I mean, it's so horrifying. And then it's like, oh, well... Yeah, so, William Wakefield, we salute you. Nevertheless, the oldest Wakefield brother settled Edward. down in Wellington and would reside there for the rest of his life. Just because he had reached his promised land and lacked the vigor that came with his former good health didn't mean that he retired quietly, and do we really expect anything else? No. On the contrary, he went on to become a member of the Provisional Council of Wellington and a member of the House of Representatives for the Hutt District, two roles that granted him a seat in the first session of the General Assembly of New Zealand that met in the following year. I guess that means in the long run, he did sort of achieve his goal of being a member of Parliament. He just had to create his own settlement to do so. He just had to create his own parliament. And make things happen for yourself. Well, we knew from his early attempts at marriage that he was ambitious and didn't take no for an answer, right? It took over five decades for him to get there, and he didn't get to taste the glory for long because this is his story, and God forbid Edward ever taste the glory for long. Though he fought against Governor George Grey, who did not properly implement the Constitution, Edward's popularity in New Zealand was only temporary. When the next governor, Robert Wynyard, became embroiled in a conflict over stalling the colony's move towards a responsible government, Edward hoped that by working closely with Wynyard, he would be able to manipulate him into moving forward with the plans. His association with Wynyard caused his sincerity to be doubted. His son later remembered that his father held a meeting where he spoke for five hours in his own defense against his detractors. But, you know, unfortunately, he would not rebound from this. Hmm. His health took another turn, and he experienced a complete physical breakdown at the end of 1854. This marked the end of his public life. He had a very long public life, but still. Under the care of his son, as well as his brother Daniel, who ultimately predeceased him, as everybody does. Oh my god, don't hang out with Edward. I'm really starting to think that when his grandmother and father were like, we're worried about people who are too close to Edward, it's because they knew that if you hung out with him, you died. Yeah, he lived a a quiet life, and he was a bit of a recluse until his death on May 16th, 1862, at the age of 66. He was buried in Wellington with his brothers, so in the home that he always wished he would have. On his grave was etched the quote that we mentioned last week, quote, the utmost happiness God vouchsafes to man on earth, the realization of his own idea. This line originated in his book, A View of the Art of Colonization, where he spoke of his excitement over the movement towards settlements in New Zealand. It seemed appropriate that he died in the place he so wanted to create. So that's it. Edward's dead. But this is where Christine and I kind of go into our gossip territory. Right. Because this is what we're wondering. It is interesting to note that following the Shrigley abduction, Edward never remarries. Right? So he's very happy with his first wife that he abducted. Yes. The second wife that he abducts, they end up, he goes to jail, they get an annulment. 
So he pursued his colonization dreams with the same vigor he once used to catch his wives. His place in history has never finally been cemented with a universally agreed upon reputation. Although it was his ideas that created the South Australia Bill, he personally did not go to Australia to implement them and got overshadowed by those who did. In New Zealand, he's remembered a bit more, perhaps because his entire family established themselves in the settlements that were his brainchild. His greatest lasting and fame in Britain was as the man who famously abducted a young lady and it was splashed all over the newspapers in 1820. That was such the case that even his first biographer, writing in the late 1800s, commented that to many in Britain, his name was unknown. He further noted that where other colonizers are known for their actions, Edward was wrought principally by the pen and by the tongue. That actually plays really well into my feelings on him. It's pretty much established that I love biography in general and that I find him fascinating. He did some crazy things and, you know, I, I just don't think he was malicious. I think he was a little bit weird and overly ambitious. But there's a thread throughout his works on colonization where he stresses the need to respect the colonies and their residents. I like how that he hated how much the British frowned upon their colonial counterparts, maybe because I live in a former colony. I mean, I've just kept thinking that I missed out on having never seen him speak. Mm, I wish for five I had, hours. I wish I had had a conversation with him. I feel like that's the only way to assess his character. So many people in so many articles talk about how listening to him and meeting him was how he became influential. So I, I feel really sad that he was in a time before we got to actually record what he looked like speaking and hear his voice. Mm. I, I think that would have been great. But I will say that I'm going to end this by adding him to my list of historical figures that I want at my dinner table. <laughs> there you go. All right, my thoughts on Edward. Okay, I think we all realize today that colonization, um, post-colonial, everything, it's its fraught with a lot of difficulties. But if, if we take Edward as he stood, where this has all seemed like an intellectual exercise to him, how can I get to Parliament? Mm -hmm. And it eventually was, I will marry well and have money and rise through the ranks. And then it was, that didn't work, so now I will create colonies and I will have a name, except that's not working. So what happens? I create my own parliament. And, I mean, that just, that astounds me, the fact that he got to parliament. Was it British parliament? No, but he created his own parliament. And, yes, once he got there, you know, the tides turned against him again, and, and that went away. But, dear Lord, the man created his own parliament. I just, I have to admire him for that. I think he's, he's funny. He's a schemer, but he just seems like such a lovable schemer. He does. He does. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for two parts on Edward Giverin Wakefield. Since we're two ladies talking about a man whose life was split into a part about women and one about colonies, let's close with a quote from the man himself that combines the two. He said, A colony that is not attractive to women is an unattractive colony. In order to make it attractive to both sexes, you do enough if you care to make it attractive to women. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week. <laughs>